Open up your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. I'm going to, I'm going to read our entire passage. We're going to try to go through the whole of chapter 1 here tonight and see the, the riches that it has for us. Titus chapter 1. This is Paul writing to, to his, his, as he calls him, true child in the faith, in the common faith. In verse 4, this is Titus, um, a representative of the Apostle Paul on the island of Crete. Verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, Upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we we thank you for this passage of scripture. It is frightening it is also it is also high it, it holds up the leadership of your church as as those which should be held to the highest standard and i pray that for these students perhaps who don't think these verses apply to them i pray that you through the power of your spirit would make it very apparent why these verses are so important to their lives I pray that you would come and teach us through your word and grip us, give us new taste for your will in all things, especially in the leadership of your church. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I found this great article. Um, I was reading this last week and I found this great article on church leadership qualifications. I thought it was helpful. It was online. And I thought I would just read it to you in its entirety. It really kind of, it really helped me in understanding a few things. And and after I read this article to you, I'll just kind of make a few notes and and point out really what I want you to take away from this article. 
It starts like this. Uh, well, today's churches seem to have tons of positions and pastors for everything. In the Bible, there are only a few church offices outlined. Elder. Deacon. And sound guy. (laughs) Got three believers back there. Each of these has lofty qualifications to ensure that the person who carries out the tasks is a godly man of character. If you want to be a church sound guy, you need to demonstrate the ability to, number one, display... This is no statement, by the way, against our lovely sound guys. Display the wrong lyric slide for every single verse and chorus. If you, if you do get it right, be sure it's at least 17 seconds late. <laughs> Number two, second qualification of the sound guy, turn off the background singers without them knowing it. <laughs> Sounds great, Chloe. Sounds great. Um, Number three, Lie with a straight face to the bass player if he asks, Am I on in the house? Am I on in the house? No. Yeah, you turned up all the way, Kyle. <laughs> Number four, endure hundreds of glares from the congregation even when it's not your fault. That's true, that's true. Number five, help the church secretary print off PDFs over and over again. <laughs> again, Gertrude, again? <laughs> it had to be, all right. Um, number six, Cue up the laugh tracks for all the pastor's jokes. You've got to make him look funny. Not an easy task. Uh, um, Number seven. Know know how to randomly adjust knobs, slides, and dials to look really, really busy. Uh, It's true. Um, uh, Number eight, of course, be the backbone of the entire operation and never get thanked for it. Unlike, this is is just the article, unlike the worship leader who basks in adoration. Um, Sounds like a sweet gig. (laughs) That, of course, is a fictional article printed by the Babylon Bee, a reparable news source for all your news. Um, And I I read that to actually make a few points. Number one, probably the sound guy doesn't get enough thanks. That's true. But number two, there there was kind of a a thing that they they were joking there in the beginning, right? The, The Bible doesn't have all of these positions out there. It doesn't have um, things like the sound guy, qualifications for a sound guy. It doesn't have qualifications for the usher. It doesn't even, shocker, have a position called youth pastor. A little uncomfortable if you think about it for a second. Um, But it does, as you can see from our passage, have one, one position that's very important. And that is leadership in the church. An elder, you see that in verse 5. Um, in First Peter, actually, Peter uses elder, shepherd, and overseer all to refer to the same position. So we don't have a hierarchy of positions. We really have elders, a church leader. And then, of course, First Timothy 3 has another position, the servants of the church, the deacons. But the church rises and falls on the leadership of the church. Notice, notice what Paul says to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, verse 5, to put what remains into place, to put what is lacking into place. This, this is very important. This is a very important ministry. And then notice, he explains what he means by what remains. And it's not all of these different positions. It's not all of these different ministries. It is actually simply 
to appoint elders in every town, just as I directed you. You can see a lot right there about the way a church operates, right? A church has a plurality of elders, and they all lead and shepherd God's flock. And that is the church that is uh, effective. That is the church that is fruitful. And that's really what Paul is writing about here in the letter to Titus. He wants Titus to strengthen the churches of uh, of Crete so that they can be faithful. He wants them to be faithful churches so that, as a result, they can be fruitful. What's most important to Paul as he's sending Titus and keeping them in Crete is, hey, help the churches remain faithful. You'll notice godliness is a huge theme in the letter to Titus. And there's hints at evangelism, right? Because godliness results in evangelistic lives. But the focus is faithfulness that produces fruitfulness. And tonight we want to see what Paul has to say about leaders in the church, this very important position. The church rises and falls on the quality of its leaders. We want to get this right. And you may be thinking, man, what does this have to do with me? Why should I read this chapter? Perhaps this is the chapter of Titus where you're like, I just don't think much of this applies to me. And let me tell you... It all, it all has great significance for you tonight. And tonight I want to do something. I want to give you a taste for God's way of doing things in the church. I want to give you a taste for it, an appetite for it, so that you have a distaste for other things. Do you ever get a taste for something in your mouth and you just can't, you can't settle with the old thing you used to like anymore? used to love McDonald's hamburgers. And then, thankfully, mercifully, I was introduced to In-N-Out hamburgers, and I'm never going back. Never going back. I used to love Paul Bunyan World, Paul Bunyan Land, in uh, Brainerd, Minnesota. It was great. It had a roller coaster that was this long. And then I was introduced to Six Flags, and then I was introduced to Disneyland. I'm never going back. Mostly because Paul Bunyan Land is... Been, has been repossessed, but that's another story. <laughs> the Bible also kind of motivates this way. Did you know that the Bible says, hey, if you have God's truth, if you have God's truth, you, you, will, you will create in you a taste, an appetite for God's truth. And as a result, you will hate every wicked way. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 103 and 104. He says this, How sweet are your words to my taste. See that? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. This man loves the word of God. And look at the result in verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I want to give you a taste for the wisdom of the will of God and the way of God in the local church. I want to give you that taste so that you you have a taste for it, you desire it, and you resist resist, um, artificial copies. So I'm going to give you a few basic reasons for why you should want uh, church leadership to be done God's way. A few just basic reasons from this uh, text. So number one reason, number one reason, good ones, that is good leaders, good ones are hard to find. You should have a taste for God's kind of leader because good leaders are very hard to find. There's a reason why diamonds, why gasoline, why electricity, 
power is so hard to come by. Uh, or I should say, it's so valuable to us here in the Central Valley, right? Because it is rare. It is rare. We're all looking for power these days. We're all wondering when the switch is going to be switched off on us and we're going to be in darkness and heat all together, right? It is hard to find, therefore it is valuable. Gas prices are going up because they are valuable. Diamonds have high value because they are hard to find. And the same thing goes for church leaders. They are actually good ones, qualified ones, are very hard to find. Notice all the effort, all the work that... Titus has to go through to find one guy. He's got to go through this whole checkoff list, starting in verse 6, and not ending until he gets to 9. And if he thinks that's easy, he can just jump over to 1 Timothy 3, and there's a few more qualifications for him there as well. Finding one guy is hard to do. By the way, Paul probably doesn't write this just for Titus's benefit. I, I imagine Titus knows these things. This is also written for the church that's reading this letter over his shoulder. You can tell he's writing not just to Titus, but to the whole church, but based on uh, chapter 3, verse 15, notice grace with you all. And unless uh, Titus has a, a complex that we don't know about, I'm sure that means all the church with Titus. Why are they so hard to find? Why are leaders so hard to find? Well, as I was saying, verse 6, they're hard to produce. Just just notice two things, two things from this list that stand out to me. I'm not going to break down every single word, what every single word means, but I want to just point out two things to you about this list of qualifications for leaders. Just see how hard this is to produce. Number one, this man has to be above reproach, verse 6 tells you. And notice, notice, this is an emphasis because not only is he saying he must be above reproach in verse 6, but also in verse 7 as well. He repeats it. He must be above reproach. Then verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. You think he's trying to emphasize something? Yes, he is. This man must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? It means, it means, well, it means literally to not have a rap sheet on you with the local magistrate. Like a person that was not above reproach had some sort of a record and he, he stood before a judge and everybody in town knew it. And probably what Paul is saying, not that, hey, just make sure he's not a criminal. Just make sure he's never been arrested. Make sure he got away with it. He's probably not saying that. What he's probably saying is, does this man have a reputation in the community that would mar the reputation of the church? And of Christ, more importantly, this word above reproach can also mean blameless. It's a blamelessness. It's, it's, it's this man. Uh, accusations cannot stick to him. Right? He better be this way. Because you better be sure that as a, as a shepherd, as a minister, as an elder of the church of Christ, accusations are going to come at him. And notice, the qualification is not that make sure that this man is really liked in the community no you better make sure he's above reproach that nothing sticks to him because people are going to try to tear this man down and mar the reputation of christ through him right he is unstickable how, how can he be this way well it's because he has this inner quality of blamelessness he has this inner quality about him how do we know that well because notice did you see uh, verse six he is the same man at home as he is in the church notice paul instantly says you will know this man by who he is in his home 
kind of wife does he have? How many wives does he have? Is he a one-woman man? That's what it's saying. Does he have children that are believers? Or I would think it'd be much better translated faithful. Because notice, he, he qualifies what that word believers or faithful means. They are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And I'll, I don't think Paul is saying there could be a category of believers that are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So these these children are um, under control. They are faithful. They may not be believers, but they are under control. They're not rowdy. He has only one wife. He's not a womanizer. Notice, notice, this man, you, you, you can trust that he is the same man at home, in private, as he is in the church. That's the kind of man you want. Someone who is blameless. But notice also, another thing that stands out about these qualifications, and, and there's a, a huge list there. I'd love to get into all of it, you know. Lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, all these good words. But that pretty much is summed up in above reproach. But notice there's one more huge emphasis, and it's the very last item on Paul's list in verse 9. And you know he's making an emphasis of it. Why? Because it's the last thing. But also, look at all the descriptions that go into this thing. What is this man also? He's above reproach, but he's also somebody who knows how to handle God's word. He knows God's word. He, verse 9 says, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There's a quality about this. This, this. this is not just another word that Paul is slapping on here. There is a verbal quality to the even uh, verb choice structure that he uses here. This is a man who continually holds on to, clings to, is close to the word of God. He keeps on holding to it. And notice Paul also talks about the results that will, will, will result in this man's life because he holds to the word of God. This is a huge qualification. If this man holds fast to the word of God, two massive things will come from his ministry. What can you count on to someone who holds fast to the word of God? What can you even have if you hold fast to the word of God personally? Hold fast, by the way, means to be closely connected. It means you know the ins and outs of something so well that you know what's true and what's error really easily because you spend so much time in the truth. That's what it means to hold fast. But but what what is the outcome in someone's life if they hold fast to the Word of God like this? Well, notice verse 9, halfway through, it says, These individuals, this man, he is, first word, able that's a that's a, a word that refers to strength, power, capacity. He has the ability to do something. He has great strength, competence to do something. And there's there's an implication here, right? Without the word of God, without the word of God, you have no strength to do these two following things. What are these things that are in the man's life because he holds fast and stays close to the word of God? Number one, he is able to give instruction. Now listen, you want this so bad in your life. I know you do. If you are a follower of of Christ, you want people in your life that can give you faithful instruction according to God's word. You hunger for it. Matter of fact, this word, give instruction, means he is able to exhort. He, He is able to call you and help you follow Christ better. 
He is strengthened for that. He is able to give you strength in pursuing Christ, turning away from sin and pursuing Christ. He is able to give you an eternal perspective. What a great thing to have. And not it's, it's not just because He is giving you His own opinions. Notice that. He's giving you, he's giving you instruction according to sound doctrine. Did you see that? He, he is giving you firm words, sound words, healthy words, not just his opinion. And notice also, he's not just somebody that's coming around with some new, flashy, entertaining kind of truth for you. Notice also, he follows what was taught in accordance to what was taught. It also says there in verse 9, he, he is not alone on his own island. You get this sense from being around this guy that he stands on the shoulders of men that have come before him in church history. Right? That's all packed in there. He is able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And notice what he is also able to do. Number two, he is also able to rebuke. And this is actually a very fascinating word. It has a very broad spectrum of meaning. So, so some, sometimes there's one word that you see all throughout the Bible that has different meanings because it's in a different context. And this word can mean all sorts of different things based on the context. It goes, it goes all the way from examining somebody's teaching to actively, physically punishing them for their teaching and error. Like, that's the spectrum that this word can have. So, and it probably, the meaning here probably fits right into the middle of that, right? This man is able to closely examine something, some teaching, some error, some contradiction to the truth. He's able to closely examine it and bring truth to bear on that error because why because he's so familiar with the word of god he knows the real thing real well and so he can always spot error as well he's able to closely examine both truth and error and this word also has this idea of he's he's coming to the person in error with convincing arguments for why it is wrong uh, this word rebuke means he is convicting you of sin. Convicting you of sin. He's giving you real spiritual conviction because he holds God's word in his hands. Notice it's not his opinions. It's not just his new exciting thing. It is the word of God. And he brings conviction over sin in your life because of that. Now, I understand I understand that that's not very easy to hear sometimes, right? It's hard hearing words that convict you of something wrong. You instantly want to fight against those words that convict you of error, right? Why, why should you want to listen to rebuking? Let's see if we can give you some motivation. Uh, wh- why is it so important? Why are such men so hard to come by? Well, they're, they're, they're hard to produce, but they're also hard to come by because they are a rarity, because their office is so important. Verse 7 says, they are God's stewards. Stewards, that might be one of my favorite words for a church leader in the Bible, actually. A steward is somebody who is a household manager. One who manages, he, he manages his master's business, his house. He might manage all of his master's personal possessions. He might even be responsible for managing his master's family. This man is entrusted with an, a tremendous amount of responsibility. 
And, and did you see this word kind of plays off of this idea of that a church leader has both authority but also accountability, right? Because if you mismanage a master's home or a master's family or his personal possessions, you better be sure you're going to hear about it from the master, right? Wicked household managers get beaten in Scripture because they are faithless. This, this is a position of accountability, sure, authority. But, but notice also, it, it puts everything in perspective, right? This, this church is not belonging to the elders or the pastor. This church isn't even belonging to the congregation. Notice, it's all, it's all God's. There's a possessive S on that steward. You are God's steward managing God's precious possession. That's what the church is. That's what the body of Christ is. Christ's precious possession. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 14, where it talks about us as the body of Christ. And Christ gave himself in verse 14 to redeem us from all lawlessness by his own death on the tree. And he purifies us for himself as a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice Christ laid down his life to die and to purchase his church. And it it even says in, in Titus 3, that it wasn't by their works that God saved them. It was totally by the washing of regeneration, by the power of the Spirit, by the righteousness of Christ. This is God's personal possession now, His bride. And He has made men stewards of it. That's why, by the way, this is so important, isn't it? Right? You should care. You should care about the kinds of leaders that a church has for, for two reasons. You should care out of mercy, and you should also care out of concern. Mercy, because, do you realize the kind of account that a man will have to give to the Lord for mismanaging the church of God? We should be uneasy about leaders that are trivial, that are flippant, that mismanage the responsibility that they've been given to us. Why? Because they will have to give an account You should care that your church cares about leaders. Why? Because these men have to give a a larger account of themselves than even you. And out of mercy, you should say, I don't want another person to be judged more severely. It's out of mercy. But you should also care about godliness in the church for concern, personal concern. You should care about the kind of leaders that are in your church. Why? Because you will become like the kind of people you follow. That's why leaders are so significant. Because they can have an impact in your life. They can influence you. They can influence you for tremendous good and for tremendous wrong as well. That's why you, student, actually should should develop a taste for what is good, for God's way of things. Good ones are hard to find. Why? Because it is hard to be a faithful steward. It's not easy. It's easy to be, it's easy to be a church slob. It's easy to be a, it's easy to be a lazy sheep as well on your part, but it's very hard to faithfully manage. Another basic reason for why you should have a taste for God's way of leadership. 
number one, it's logical, I would say. If, if good ones are hard to find, the second one just is, is like the opposite of that. Um, number two, bad ones are easy to come by. Good ones are hard to find. Bad ones are easy to find, right? And that's what you see there in verse 10, isn't it? That's what you see. You see, there are many. Right? It, it suggests something to me. It's, it's one out of many. You, you enter into a city, you see lots of church buildings, but you can guess, perhaps, just based on Scripture, that it's one out of many that are good. Because there are many bad ones out there. That's, that's, that's the gist. That's disconcerting, right? There are many people who want position and title and role and authority and influence in your life, and you should steer clear of them. Look at the danger. Verse 11, they upset families. And probably what this means is they're leading families astray because they're getting to the head of the household, and that gets the whole entire family to go with them, and they're upsetting families. Notice, Sin is, is seen as, as, as something that upsets your life, upsets your family. Verse 11, they also teach what gives them the most money. They're, they teach what gives them a platform. They are greedy. You'll, you'll see them to be more of a mirror of their culture than they are a mirror of God's word. Why? Because they want popularity, fame, money, all these kinds of things. Therefore, they will be more like their culture. They, they, they hold fast to their culture. They hold fast to being cool. That's what they want to be like. And that's what they will become. They'll become a mirror of that. Verse 14. They are devoted to the kinds of teaching that turns you from the grace of the gospel. That's pretty dangerous. And then notice verse 15 and 16, which, which, which I see as a description of both the leader and the people they lead. This is your future if you go with them. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Uh, what's uh, they defile the mind they defile the conscience and what's the result of a defiled mind a defiled conscience you don't know what's right and wrong anymore you get confused another result you become disobedient and look at this remember key word in the letter to Titus right unfit for any good work you are unfruitful because you are unfaithful and remember, the reason why Christ died, verse 14 of chapter 2, is to make you a people zealous for good works and by a leader that can be undermined. Those you surround yourself with and look up to will influence you, no doubt. By the way, this might be a shocker. This is a little free one. So this doesn't count. The timer actually stops right here. This is, this is just a shocker. Um, the false teacher that Paul is describing here in chapter 1 probably is not the kind of false teacher that you have in your head right now. You're probably thinking, oh, this guy's easy to spot. Look at uh, verse 10. Oh, man, he's insubordinate. Well, oh, that's easy to spot. Empty talker, easy. Deceiver, easy. Wait, did you know what deceiver means? <laughs> no? Well, let me say this. He's probably not 
primarily here referring to a kind of leader who lives lawlessly. He's probably not referring to the kind of leader, you know, that that uh, lives high in the hog, takes all your money with a smile on his face, with a globe spinning behind him. He's probably not the kind of swearing, womanizing leader that you have in your mind that you're like, oh, that's easy to spot. I'd never fall for that. Notice, notice what he, notice, by the way, Paul is definitely warning against those guys, right? Uh, Verse 6, verse 7, right? He must not have a problem with women. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be violent. He must not be uh, greedy for gain. He must be all these kind of things. He's he's clearly talking about those, those easy-to-spot false teachers that are in it for the money. But, but notice how he primarily describes these teachers that Titus will confront. And it's instructive for you. Notice, primarily, they are a very lawful feeling group, aren't they? Verse 10, they, they, especially those of the circumcision party, those are Judahiters who believe they have to they turn people into Jews before they can become Christians, and then they can be Christians. Verse 14, they are devoted to Jewish myths. And even verse 15 and 16 has this ceremonial idea packed into it where, where a Jew would see some food as impure and other foods as pure. And, and maybe perhaps what Paul is saying there is, to those who are free in Christ, all things are free, all things are pure. But to those who are not free in Christ, who are still under the old covenant stipulations, they see everything as defiled. Notice, this is a very law-feeling group. And notice, teachers like this, false teachers like this, are so appealing, so deceitful, because they look so good on the outside, right? They, they, they look like they're so obedient. But notice in the end, verse 10, they are actually insubordinate. Because, why, why, why? They have all these external things going on. And they, they, they force external rules on you saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, and you'll be saved. But they cannot get at the change, the true change that comes from a changed heart. Right? This is what Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, actually. Talking about similar false teachers, not the same, but similar. Uh, chapter 2, verse 23, These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity on the body. These people are really legalistic. But then notice this, verse 23, But they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Insistence on laws and regulations actually are very weak are powerless against the flesh. Actually, personal experience here, legalism, I find, often produces the worst kinds of moral collapse. Why? Because everything is impure in their conscience. They're trying to be good on the outside, but inside they are tormented by, I am failing, I am not living up. And that causes them to despair, or that causes their kids to despair because they can't live up to the standard that the parents set for them externally, and the kids rebel. And they they go after the world as hard as they can because they cannot figure out how to deal with this nagging conscience issue. So be guarded. 
be guarded against those who would want to force you to focus solely on the external. That can have devastating consequences. Or, like our heading says, bad ones are easy to come by. Bad ones are easy to come by. A final basic reason for you to have a taste for God's way in church leadership. Just to remind you of the first one, good ones are hard to find, bad ones are easy to come by. Number three, good ones can be a mercy and a rescue. If there is ever a reason to have a taste for God's way in church leadership, in, in God's kind of leaders, this is the point. This is, this is the kind of leader I want because they can be a mercy and a rescue to me. And listen up. If you, if you struggle to hear uh, sermons that are hard on you, you should listen up to this point. This point is for you. Look at the contrast, though. Just look at the contrast between um, the kind of leaders that Paul is seeking for Titus to set up and the kind of leaders that want to be set up themselves. The bad ones, even though they seek perhaps to follow the law, in the end are insubordinate. Verse 10, they are detestable in verse 16. But but the the man who must be appointed, how, what is he like? He is an above reproach man. He has a life that is true from the inside, in the secret man. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant has transformed his heart and his mind. His family is at peace. His, his life is marked by love, hospitality, generosity. But what are the bad ones? They're insubordinate, detestable. Well, look at another contrast. The bad ones, no matter how much of the law they think they can rattle off, notice what he says here in verse 10, they have nothing to say of value to you. No, no, they are empty talkers. What a fun little image, right? They are fans moving air in the room. They're not saying anything. It's empty. They're just moving nothing. But notice, it's not just that they're empty talkers. It's worse than that. They're also deceivers. They, they think they know all of this, but actually they are deceivers in verse 10. And they will lead you to that terrifying picture in verse 15 and 16, right? And I would say this. Notice, notice how Paul can say both they are empty, they've got nothing to say, and they've got terrible things to say. It's almost as if, in my mind, he is saying, be careful. Be careful of false teachers. Even if they present to you some good things, it's not worth the danger and the damage that they also bring with them, right? They're empty, but that doesn't mean they're innocent. They can do tremendous harm to you, to your life. But notice also, the bad ones, another contrast, the bad ones, despite the good things they think they do, will always lead you astray because they're always being led astray. But notice, and here's the big one. Notice the contrast between the bad ones and the good ones. The bad ones are always leading astray. The good ones can rescue and bring you back at last. Did you see what verse 13 said? This is why having an elder who can rebuke is so Amazing, so wonderful, such a blessed mercy in your life. Verse 13, this testimony, referring to, of course, the, the reputation that all Cretans have, is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Once again, bring conviction of sin into their life. 
not just opinions, but based on the truth of God, so that they may, look, look at the result, be sound in the faith. This is wonderful. You get the sense here that the Word of God is powerful enough to help and rescue even the teachers themselves. How much more? How much more can being around a good and godly leader who knows his Bible rescue you when you go astray, when you start thinking wrong thoughts, when you start trusting in how you feel rather than what God says? How much more value, how much more power, how much of a greater rescue, how much more mercy can be in your life when you are surrounded with a good and godly leader? Or all to say, when the church gets leaders right, it seems though they have everything. When the church gets leaders wrong, they are in devastation. They have nothing. They are fruitless. No evangelism will happen. No good works can really prosper there. So, final question. What do you do when teaching is really hard? Because sometimes, and I feel this too, sometimes living under the Word of God brings conviction of sin. What do you do when you find that the Word of God is convicting you of sin? Ask yourself two questions. One, is this a conviction from the Word of God or from some personality? Evaluate the conviction. Am I being persuaded by some sort of personality or am I being persuaded by arguments brought to me by the Word of God and I cannot find my way out of this corner that that has painted for me? Ask yourself that question. Is this a conviction from God's Word or personality? And then two, number two, Second question you ask when teaching is hard to hear. Faithful teaching is hard to hear. Shouldn't I be thankful for God's truth? Think about this verse. Memorize this verse if you struggle. And say, but if this man is bringing me God's truth, regardless of where I am, regardless of how I feel about it, I should be so thankful. Because I don't want to be verse 15. I don't want to be verse 16. In the end, I'll just say it like this. I'm convinced. I don't always like hearing truth. Myself. I don't always like hearing truth. But I'm convinced I need truth. And that's more important than how I feel about truth. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this night that you've given us to be together in small group. I pray that we'd be um, faithful and attentive and alert and careful in in how we uh, talk to one another. We'd be vessels for help and not to break down. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.